0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Dr.
1: Shane, and welcome to the Thursday edition of Lifeline, 13th day of September already. My, how time flies when you're having fun. And uh, we're here for yet another edition of the program with you each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that affect your life and your world. Speaking of your world, your state, as we head into the primary elections here, um, general election rather, in November, the gap seems to be closing now between former San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom and his Republican challenger, John Cox. In fact, there's new polling out that I think will shock you, particularly given the fact that only 25% of registered voters in California identify as Republican. Wait till you find out where things are headed, at least according to the polls. Brian Johnston joins us, coming up a little bit later on with a report. There are some new words to the American lexicon. You're perhaps familiar with them. Deep state, fake news, internal administrative subversion. Terms unheard of in American politics, certainly five, even two years ago. But now, now they are as much apparently of the fiber of the politics of Washington, D.C. as things like the legislative, the judicial, and the executive branches. Many would argue that Donald Trump was sent to Washington, D.C. to drain the swamp, But the alligators and crocodiles living in it apparently are just as happy, water or no water. And when the biggest barrier to the administration's agenda isn't Congress, as you would expect traditionally, but apparently his own staff, what does that say of the future of our republic, let alone what happened to all the promises of... We've got the best people. I know the best people.
2: We're going to use our best people. The best people. The best people. I know guys that are so good.
1: As we take a look at this issue, we are joined next by Steve Hilton. Steve, of course, you know, was the guest or host of The Next Revolution with Steve Hilton on the Fox News Channel. He's just written a new book called Positive Populism, Revolutionary Ideas to Rebuild Economic Security, Family and Community in America. Steve, great to have you with us. Great to be with you. You know, when that uh, that op-ed piece came out a couple of weeks ago, and much of the attention seemingly has been focused on who wrote it, why did they write it, when did they write it, all of these details, the one big thing that struck me was that small simple line that maybe is the most poignant of the entire op-ed piece, and that is the suggestion that there's some sort of resistance going on from within the White House that will go as far as even pulling documents apparently off of the president's desk in order to protect the republic. And I thought of that, and I thought, you know, I— I don't know if I would recognize a coup up front if I were in the middle of it, but it seems to me that that certainly seems to take on a lot of the flavoring of what the beginnings of a coup must look like. Now, I know some people will hear that, Steve, and say, oh, my God, boy, is, is he going for the dramatic here. But does that equally trouble you, the sense that there's people inside the administration, hired by the administration, working for this president, that are engaged in that kind of behavior?
3: It very much troubles me, and I think you, you, you explained it perfectly, and it's exactly right. Just one, one small point before we get into the really serious one. Um, this particular example you cited about the, the, the papers being taken off the desk of the president, what's really hilarious about that story is that that's in reference to Gary Cohn, the president's former chief economic advisor, who tried to stop the president from moving forward on uh, his promise to uh, renegotiate a trade deal that was bad for American workers. And now you've, you've got the left celebrating and cheer, cheering him on for this. So you've got the hilarious spectacle of the left cheering on a Goldman Sachs banker who's acting to protect the interests of the super rich by blocking the president from protecting the interests of American workers. It's, the irony is just so hilarious. But the serious point is that for many, many. Uh, decades now, I think, you've seen a permanent ruling class pushing forward an agenda in Washington, D.C., actually in other countries too, irrespective of who's actually won elections. This revolt against the the elected uh, politicians isn't anything particularly new. It's just more extreme in the case of Donald Trump, because in previous administrations, what's happened is that the permanent ruling class, I call it the axis of elitism, the, the, the ruling class that brings together big government and big business to push forward an agenda that's favored their interests a huge amount in the last few decades and being positive and enthusiastic about globalization and automation and the centralization of power and government and the economy and, of course, uncontrolled immigration. All those things have really benefited the elites who've pushed that forward, those who work in the knowledge economy in Silicon Valley. Uh, and so on, and in the thriving urban centers, whereas most American workers have been left behind. Now, the, 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 the politicians for a long time have gone along with it. But this president was, as you described, elected to change that, to disrupt it, to overturn that elitist consensus. And, of course, they can't stand it, and they want to get their power back, and that's what's going on here. And that's one of the reasons I wrote my book, Positive Populism, because we know what populism... Is against, it's against some of the things we've been discussing. But what I wanted to do was to explain well, what's the positive way we can take forward that populist revolution and keep that um, power from slipping back into the hands of the, of the, of the permanent ruling class? And, and it's full of ideas to control and take away power from the deep state as we've now got used to calling it. Um, One specific example I'll give you, and and then we can perhaps talk about some others. One idea in in the book is that I think we need to really understand who we're dealing with. What is this permanent bureaucracy? Who are they? It's not just about one anonymous op-ed writer. It's the hundreds and thousands of civil servants and bureaucrats who work in the federal bureaucracy who every single day are doing all sorts of things to thwart the interests of working Americans. We need to know who they are. We need to publish their names, their job descriptions, the civil service organization charts. Once we map it all out and unmask the deep state, then we can decide, do we need these people? Or can we take their power and transfer it to state government or local government or get rid of it entirely and cut it by a huge proportion? I'm advocating a 90% cut in the federal bureaucracy. That's one, That's one specific idea, but there are more. We've got to get power back in the hands of the people. And that's the whole point of the populist revolution.
1: And I think this has surprised a lot of Americans because, again, the notion of seeing pushback against the president's agenda is not unusual. Certainly Bush complained about it in relationship to Congress. So did Barack Obama. Somebody like FDR going back to the 1930s and the New Deal saw a tremendous amount of pushback against his agenda by the highest judicial branch in the union, that, of course, being the Supreme Court. But maybe the the fallacy here has been the notion that somehow if we changed who resided at the White House or even changed a handful of people within Congress, that that would effectively drain the swamp. And you've really, I think, touched, Steve, on a very important key issue here, and that is it isn't so much the political appointees or even the elected ones that we have to worry about. It's a lot of the long-term, deep, embedded you know, bureaucrats that have been there for years and years and years to kind of see, and you describe it this way in the book, is as politicians is sort of, you know, the Johnny-come-latelys. They're not really experts. They're here for a while, then they're gone again. And yet we, as the committed, dedicated bureaucrats of Washington, D.C., we're here for the long haul. We really understand the big picture here. And so as a result, they tend to perhaps think a lot more of their positions than they should and are engaged in just the kind of behavior we've been talking about.
3: And and the, and the problem is, because they're, they're hidden from view, because you don't know who they are, what you don't see... I mean, we hear all the time about corruption in politics, and the, you know, I feel very strongly about that. And there are chapters in my book about how we deal with um, that corruption and, and and the conflicts of interest between politicians taking money from the same industries that they regulate and the lobbying that goes on in respect of politicians. We talk about that all the time, and I've got specific ideas in positive populism for dealing with it but the 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 thing we don't see is all the lobbying And swampiness, as I put it on my show on Sunday nights on Fox, that goes on with all these permanent um, civil servants and bureaucrats that aren't well-known. No one who knows who they are. They're constantly talking to the lobbyists. They're constantly being offered jobs. When you leave, do your time in the public sector, and then you know that there's a cushy job waiting for you as head of corporate affairs or on the board or with some lobbying firm. All that is completely hidden from view. That's where the real power lies. Uh, that, the, the power to determine the regulatory framework that can make all the difference for a big corporation and so on, and, and also acts to crush the competition. That's another really big feature of this elitism that has been so damaging, is this alliance, this, this axis of elitism between big government and big business. It's really bad for the things that we should all want to see, which is new entrepreneurs and startups coming up and challenging the incumbents and bringing new products to the market and getting, getting there, being able to climb the ladder. We should be on their side, not the people who are already at the top, but the system that we have favors those who are already at the top. By the way, that also applies. Right across the economy, when you see social mobility, that, that story of American opportunity, you can rise up to education and hard work, that's not true for so many millions of Americans anymore because the, when Bernie Sanders on the left talks about the rigged economy and the rigged system, it resonates because it's true. But, what, but the answers that are coming from the left side of the populist debate would make things worse. And that's another reason I've written my book, Positive Populism, because I want to make sure that we take this populist movement and turn it into something that delivers real benefits for American workers and doesn't make the problem worse.
1: And, of course, what's troubling about all of this, and you're getting to the core of the matter, it's not just that these people are hidden from view, but they're protected from public accountability. And I think it should... Really, not 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 slip by any of us when we saw the number of registered lobbyists in Washington D.C. back in the early days of the Clinton administration jump from 3,500 registered lobbyists to over 35,000 registered lobbyists who are clearly there to promote a variety of agendas, many of which, quite frankly, speak nothing. To what is best for the American people, but rather just a very core, narrow group of individuals. It is shocking to the point of, I think, our, our founding fathers would be horrified to even think that this is going on, that can potentially unravel the very fabric of American democracy. We're visiting today with Steve Hilton. He is the host of The Next Revolution with Steve Hilton, heard Sunday evenings on Fox News. He's got a brand-new book out, one that's worthwhile picking up and reading. It's called Positive Populism, Revolutionary Ideas to Rebuild Economic Security, Family, and Community in America. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Steve Hilton as this edition of Lifeline continues. All right, 518, let's get caught up on some traffic here, shall we? Michael Bennett stands by with the latest on your Thursday ride home. Michael?
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And back to our conversation with Steve Hilton. Steve, of course, is host of The Next Revolution with Steve Hilton, heard Sunday evenings on Fox News. He has a brand new book out called Positive Populism, Revolutionary Ideas to Rebuild Economic Security, Family and Community in America. You know, Steve, there's been a lot of talk about the need for greater transparency and to kind of shine a light. But I have to wonder if, if we have reached the stage... Particularly in light of recent developments coming out of Washington D.C., that it's not just a matter of shining a light anymore, because you know, like cockroaches, you shine a light, they scurry for the corners. But do we really need to get down to the idea of rooting them out? You hint at the notion of a significant reduction in the roles of bureaucrats in Washington. What was that? What would that look like?
3: Well, I think in in one sense it's very simple. Um, to to, to use a phrase that the president has made famous, you're fired. You just have to cut them. This is my experience in the part you can't reform. You can't reform a bureaucracy. You can, you can make it a little bit more efficient. But the more efficient you make it in, the, in, in a strange way, the, the more it, uh, it works in the opposite direction than the one we want. What you actually need is just to, to reduce the capacity of the bureaucracy, to overwhelm the uh, elected political representatives with, with paperwork and process and all the things that they do. The other really important part of this is not just making the government more accountable in the ways that, that I've described. There's a chapter in, in my book about how we need to make government more local. We need to decentralize power. Because remember, that that's in the Constitution. It's been completely betrayed, that promise in the Tenth Amendment, that not, the things that aren't specified in the Constitution are reserved for the states or the people. That's, that's completely gone by the wayside. So we need to take powers away over huge areas, I would argue, healthcare care and, and education. Anything that can be done at the local level should be done at the local level. And by local, I really mean local, not just state government. I mean, where we are in California. I mean, that's, a, that's the fifth biggest economy in the world. That's not exactly decentralized. I'm talking about taking power to the lowest possible level. I've got ideas in my book about how you can run things literally at the neighborhood level where people can actually know each other and understand what, what needs to happen in their area. There are specific things we can do in terms of running local services and spending money and really taking back control over our democracy. I think that was the genius of the founders. I'm, I'm here as an American now with all the zeal of the convert. And I love that idea that the power should be in the hands of the people, but that idea has been completely, completely betrayed. And that's what populism, I think, is all about, positive populism, is taking power out of the hands of the distant elite and putting it in hands of the people.
1: And and the irony, Steve, is that we've sort of failed to learn the lessons of history and the experience of others. I mean, as we've been busy sort of uh, centralizing power and money and authority Mm. and programs and control in the United States, taking it away from the local levels, as it it had been from the beginning. I mean, Peru's states' rights, and you understand more about this. But at the Mm. end of the day, we've been busy in the steady march towards centralization of so much, and yet our neighbors across in, in The Soviet Union saw their nation collapse because eventually that bloatedness of centralized government tends to collapse in on itself, and yet we've ignored that. Yes, exactly.
3: And it's all going in the wrong direction, and not just up to the federal government in in Washington, but actually beyond that to these unaccountable international um, organizations. And that's why I'm really pleased to see the president make a strong argument, both in his campaign and subsequently. Um, for the primacy of national sovereignty, because in the end these globalists and that 's another word we 've started to, to to use that wasn 't around before the globalism and globalist institutions. The reason that they 're wrong is that they 're not democratic who are they accountable to in the end it 's a government that 's elected that has to have the power and the decision making and, and when we hand it all over. these multinational, multilateral bodies or like the EU or the IMF or the World Bank or whatever it may be, or or, all these... Um, international organizations, even like the World Trade Organization, others that make the rules. You know, they, you know what happens. They, they get set up and then they hire these grandees to lead them and they hire an army of bureaucrats. And before you know it, they're, they're, they've got a whole process of their own and it's very difficult to stop their momentum. That's why it's quite right to insist that in the end, the decision-making power rests with the national government.
1: Do you think that the president's opinion and comments made recently on everything from the United Nations to the International Criminal Court are spot on?
3: 100%. In fact, I wrote an article about it um, on foxnews.com, and had an opinion piece, because I think it's a really good example of, of of taking a tough and principled stand, because it's one of those things that sounds really good. You know, who would be against prosecuting war criminals, of course. But when you have a body that is not accountable to um, elected governments, you, you get in real trouble. And, and, and I think it's quite right to protect American troops from the uh, rulings and potential prosecution of a group of people that have absolutely no democratic or accountability connection to the American people.
1: In light of what you see revealed not only in the new book, but certainly in the comments in the op-ed piece that we touched on earlier, if, if you were advising the president, what's the best approach here to rooting out some of the leaks and obviously some of those that, that think they're doing good by creating this internal resistance to the administration? How should that well, be addressed? This is
3: the re- it's a really profound issue, and there isn't a simple answer to it. Again, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I wanted to try and help contribute to a broader platform for this popular, populist movement, a, a body of ideas. So it's not just one election campaign and one politician um, who's gone in there to disrupt things, but we start creating a real uh, movement behind this pro-worker, pro-family, pro-community populist movement, so that so that you can start to build up a group of people from which to pick the loyal. Um, team of advisors and 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 cabinet members and so on who really understand and believe in the populist argument. I think that the problem is there aren't enough people around the president who really understand what he's trying to do and support it and can translate his instincts into really good policy. And that's why my book, Positive Populism, is is, is really a, a policy book. It's, it's a, it's tw- there are 27 policy ideas in there on everything, not just from reforming government, as we've discussed, but on schools and healthcare, care and, and reversing family breakdown and, and uh, training the next generation with the skills they need for the 21st century, There's a whole range of policies. And I think that's what we need to start doing is build this populist movement into something that can really last beyond one, uh, one election and, and even one presidency.
1: And certainly, as yes, I think any student of history will agree, the, the power of the government should come from the bottom up, not the other way around some uh, really good insights and of course you'll see more inside the pages of positive populism revolutionary ideas to rebuild economic security family and community in America newly published available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through amazon.com and its author has been our guest in this segment of Lifeline Steve Hilton host of the next revolution with Steve Hilton Sundays on Fox News and thanks again Steve for being with us all right 530. let's get a look at traffic right now right quick here's Michael Bennett with an up- for you from the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. This wire service story I'm reading here during the break is probably apropos to the introduction of my next guest. Uh, there is a new report out by the Census Bureau that shows that while California's poverty rate has fallen, and, you know, there's often boast about how wealthy we are, if we were an independent country, we'd be the seventh most powerful economy in the world, and, you know, what a great magnet the jobs are, and, you know, we wouldn't have such high home prices if there wasn't so much money in our state. On and on the list goes, and as Governor Brown is set to term out of office after four terms in office, I guess he can add to his list of accomplishments helping make California Enjoy another proud economic distinction, that we have the highest poverty rate in the nation. New numbers released, as I say, by the Census Bureau, that while Californians in poverty fell to 19%, a one4 decrease from last year. That still means that more than 10 million people in our state, 7 million, I'm sorry, 7 million people in our state struggle to get by. A lot of which, in terms of California politics, we should be ashamed of. And uh, along that list includes um, a lot of bad bills that have been passed, a lot of directions that have been taken. And yet, as I mentioned, this governor will be termed out at the end of the year. And we'll have an opportunity in November to get some new direction in our country and hopefully reverse numbers like the one I just cited. Take a look at progress in that area. There's another Poll out, and we'll let Brian Johnston tell you all about it. He's Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And, Brian, given the percentile of registered voting Republicans in our fair state, this is certainly uh, good, if not absolutely amazing, news concerning the future of the gubernatorial race.
2: Yes, Craig, it is. I'm, I like how you wed those two points. Um, right now, John Cox is getting very close to. Gavin Hooson. Who to fuck? And yet polls show that he is well above the voter registration for Republicans. So this is not a Republican versus Democrat race. This is common sense versus cultural madness. And it's very exciting. I actually if you don't mind, Craig, I wanna I wanna pick up what you said about the poor. We're now the poverty rate in California, which is hidden from many people's eyes. And a Bill, you and I have talked about, it's finally getting attention. But as you know, on September 5th, their governor, Governor Jerry Brown, signed Assembly Bill 282, which allows now for people to go out and promote assisted suicide for medical problems. And literally, effective September 5th in California, if you're an heir, you can legally call up Grandma and say, you know, Grandma, you know the doctor can kill you and it's going to be painless? And I really recommend you should. Now, on September 4th, that was illegal. You were committing a crime. That's now legal. And a nursing home, uh, a nursing home administrator who wants that bed, and again, I've been in many nursing homes, most nursing homes, they have to accept Medi-Cal payment. Well, medi will pay a max of $1,500 for that bed per month insurance can pay five up to ten thousand dollars for that debt it's now legal for that nursing home employee because of people in poverty to tell that person in poverty you know what we can make this really easy for you it's legal for them to do that now it's been almost 30 years craig that we've talked about this issue coming And in some ways, I'm stunned you and I have stood like the little boy in Holland with our finger in the dike. And now, certain people are contacting us because the dike has broken quietly, and it's flooded. And I literally have had people calling us saying, what should we do? What can we do? And I hate to put it this way, now they want to learn how to swim in a culture where doctors will kill you for money, because doctors are paid. And they'll pay you because, they'll do it because you don't have enough money. Effective September 5th, that's the law in California. So there's two things, Craig, I want to if I can. I've been getting calls, and it's just not myself. We have several other advocates on assisted suicide. People are calling. They want to be trained. How should they deal with this? What should they do? And so if people want training on this, if people want to be trained, We will come to you in the next two months, there's two things we want to do. We will come to you, we'll show you what to do to protect your loved ones. But in reality, sorry, that's my phone acting up. In reality, this is the time churches are calling. If you want someone from California pro-life to come to your church in the next two months to tell you what to do, the fact that the poor now are targeted, that assisted suicide is legalized, and pushing people into it is legalized, we can help you. Send me an email at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at org. Over the next two months, there'll be folks fanning out throughout the state, trying to equip people now, again, to be honest, to learn how to swim in this new culture, because we're no longer standing at the levee, we're no longer standing at the dike with our finger in it. This is now a culture, thanks to Jerry Brown, that... Medical doctors will kill, they'll do it for money, and the the target is the poor. The target is those who aren't being careful. This is the real thing. Secondly, back to your poll on John Cox. Shall I talk about that just for a
1: second? Please.
2: Yes, you're so patient, and I know for many years you have been. We are having a training tomorrow. If you want to be part of that phone-in training, again, send an email to me. I'll give you all the information. Why are we having this training? The next two months is election season. October 6th is not that significant. It's only when they count. That's the day they count the votes. If you're waiting and think about election day, you do not understand. Election season is when things are won. And right now, the church is barely waking up. Christians are barely waking up. There should be voter registration drives. Any pastor who thinks, no, no, we can't do a voter registration drive, I hate to use this word, but it's the true word, they're deceived. The church should be involved in civics. It's perfectly legal and appropriate for your church to be involved in a civic. And if your church is not concerned about the civic process and the nature of the laws, then there really is something misunderstood. And you need to make sure that your church is involved in the civic process. If you wait, I, I just saw someone sent me an email. They're having an election conference on November 3rd. <laughs> I'm sorry. On November 3rd, if you stop at your church and say, hey, you got to vote for so-and-so of the pro-life. Oh, do I have to be registered? It's too late. You must work now. Again, no election day is merely the day they count it. If you look at our last election, The lion's share of the votes were cast by mail, by absentee. Now is the time to be working. Do not wait. If you want to reap a harvest, you have to be working now. I'll just tell you, our our last president, people are familiar with President Obama. You know, the only job, we know that the current president had a lot of amazing jobs doing things. President Obama only did one thing. He was a community organizer. And you know where he organized? Churches. He organized black churches, and I'll just put it frankly, he used racial resentment to organize those churches and to get them into to vote. That was his profession. That was his only profession. And yet many churches who are not resentful churches, churches who want to establish what is good and right and just in the law, they don't tend to vote. They think they can't because of their church. So if our opponents use churches... To push ideology, you know, Jerry Brown was was the mayor of Oakland, and you know what? He used black churches to organize and to get elected mayor of Oakland. Jerry Brown does that, and so what we want you to do, whether Democrat or Republican, that's not really the issue. As as John Cox is pointing out in this startling poll, I don't care what your party is. If you're looking for common sense, and again, we're on a Christian station. If you have Christian values. You need to care enough about them to be involved in civics. And if you're not, I want to say I don't think you do care. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll be that honest. If you're a Christian and you're not aware of the civic process, then you're missing the point. And so this season right now, we are now in election season. John Cox is merely the top of the ticket. What we really want are all the way down the ticket, your local school board. There are people running for school boards, and some might even be from your church. But if you don't get involved, you know, Planned Parenthood runs candidates for school boards. And you know why? They want into your schools. If you don't get involved, then you have no one to blame.
1: And we absolutely want to underscore that idea that uh, every Christian ought to be involved in this process. And it doesn't matter what the background of your church is doesn't matter what your denominational background is we have a right and a responsibility uh, you know the i've quoted it many times and you you probably even know it perhaps by heart um, that line out of the gettysburg address so eloquently penned in the middle of the war by president lincoln government of by and for the people this is the oven by part is to be registered to vote to be engaged in the political process and voting for the candidate that you feel best represents your values, what you hold dear, and what you believe, as a Christian in this case, will be most in line with your personal theology. And so, uh, you know, it's offset that... um, In a democracy, people tend to get the government they deserve. If you're not happy with the government you have, then do something to change it. And it requires your participation, not only at the ballot box, but even running for office. And uh, the, the notion of praying about, should you make a run for school board? Should you make a run for city council? Make your way up the chairs, as they say. Maybe someday be a real influencer for the sake of the kingdom. So these are the challenges that we are facing, and I want to just urge you as we head into the November election here, there's been a lot of frustration voiced about where this nation is at today, morally, spiritually, politically, and where a lot of people talking of the new Census Bureau numbers in terms of the economy and those suffering the most in California, where 20 percent of our Californians are at the poverty level, 20 percent do something, be proactive to change all of that and get your church, Asian, Latino, African-American, white, diversified, whatever, to be actively engaged in this. Not for the sake of politics' sake, but for the sake of the responsibility we have as citizens. You can't fluff this off on somebody else because, again, As Lincoln put it, this is government of, by, and for the people. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, for that update. All right, let's get an update on Traffic 548, the latest with Michael Bennett.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You know, when you think of a lot of the challenges that our nation has been facing for the last couple of three years, um, you know, unemployment situations, uh, loss of homes because of a foreclosure, uh, you know, it, it's easy to get discouraged, certainly to kind of live in that that place, that sort of permanent disappointment. And yet, out of all of that, particularly for Christians, how do we we be uh, sort of adequately rise up and, and and above all of that so we can go on with life and and enjoy victory in our relationship with Christ? Well, that topic uh, centers around the title of a new book written by my next guest. Uh, you'll recognize her as having been the uh, Emmy Award-winning co-host of Aspiring Women on uh, KTLN here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's written a number of best-selling books. In fact, over over 30 to her credit, including her latest, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. And Michelle McKinney-Hammond, Michelle, great to have you on the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Boy, this is, uh, this is a timely topic. So many people are just dealing with that kind of overall biting sense of disappointment of what's going on. They've, you know, life can be tough enough, and then when you add to it the economy and so on and so forth, yeah. I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in that place and they don't know how to get out.
4: Yes, yes, because they begin to see cycles in their lives, and it it leads to the the deception that this is all life has to offer, and, well, I should just settle in and and not expect more than where I am, and then we begin to to make choices that sink us even lower into that place, you know?
1: And then I wonder, as that process is kind of taking place, um, if there needs to be a change in our thinking. You know, I think there are some Christians who who move into that position of defeat and disappointment, and they kind of, you know, kind of conclude that it's here, it's here to stay. So I have to learn to live with disappointment, as opposed to learning from disappointment and then moving on back into victory.
4: Right. Because every disappointment, you know, a friend of mine um, all describes disappointment as a disappointment uh, in the sense that we make appointments in life for ourselves, decisions of, of what should be or how things should go. And when the other people don't meet us there, the other parties involved don't meet us there, we feel dissed, we feel um, cast off. Um, and it just really invites a spirit of rejection that lowers our self esteem and, and literally paralyzes us. Um, so that we do get stuck, as you said.
1: And a lot of it, I think, then comes down to misguided expectations. I mean, let's think for a moment about people. Mm -hmm. How often do we live in that position of disappointment because our son, our daughter, our husband, our wife, uh, our parents uh, did something or behaved in a fashion that disappointed us, and now all of a sudden we're, we're kind of stuck in that defeat position? Yeah,
4: yeah. It's true, and, 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 you know, life is is a greater thing than that, and so we really cannot base uh, how, the conclusions that we make on life based on what people did or didn't do. It has to be come from a, a deeper place. That's why I use the, the woman at the well um, as an example um, in this book, How to Get Past Disappointment, because she had been through a cycle of disappointments that led her to the conclusion that that was all life had to offer for her. And, and the danger in that is that when we get so jaded by our disappointments, we can't recognize the blessing when it does present itself.
1: And, you know, what's amazing about that story is that um, e- even as, as Jesus meets with her, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah. You know, we we, I think sometimes think that we can kind of hide that. We try to mask those feelings Mm -hmm. instead of coming to the terms with them or instead of dealing with the root cause of what is behind the disappointment. And sometimes the role that we play, because maybe we've gotten our eyes focused more on the person or the situation instead of keeping our eyes focused on Christ. Mm -hmm. And, And maybe as we're, you know, kind of trying to keep up fronts, you know, keep up appearances. And yet Jesus fully knows what's going on, doesn't he?
4: He does, you know, and and, and what I think is important for for listeners to know is that despite your bad choices, um, your seeming failures, or even uh, the contributions you think you've made to your life being the way you are, Jesus makes an appointment with all of us. I mean, Jesus went to that well to meet that woman on purpose. It was a purposeful decision to be there that day when she got there, Um, and I think that he Um, is just as purposeful with meeting us in those places of disappointment. He has an appointment to meet us there, um, to show us another way, to show us another wellspring, another area of fulfillment um, that will bring about uh, what we've been thirsting for. I don't think that she even realized how deep her disappointment was until he started pushing her buttons and uh, getting her to see that there was an option. You know, so many people that I talk to who are disappointed feel they don't have any other option. Hmm. Um, I was just talking to um, a friend of mine the other day on the phone and uh, another failed relationship, and she said, well, here I am alone again, um, and I don't think I'll ever have anyone. I said, well, maybe you don't have anyone today, but don't feel that because that person rejected you that you have no options. You have options. And as a matter of fact, uh, we exercise those options every day. I mean, I always tell single people, you're alone because you want to be alone, because there are people that you de- decided that you did not want to have in your life. Mm. You know, so don't don't say that, you know, oh, you, you, you are the helpless person in this. No, you've had options that you chose not to exercise. So you are single by choice.
1: How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. The title of her new book, newly published again by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com as well as through Bay Area Christian bookstores and bookstores overall. Uh, Michelle, as we talk about uh, sort of realigning our, our expectations, talk to me about the process of moving from from fear to hope in, in the backdrop of dealing with circumstances, sometimes of our own creation, sometimes beyond our control. But nevertheless, how do we go about making that transition from fear to hope?
4: Well, it really is taking, taking our eyes off of what we consider the source to seeing the root of the issue. Because the disappointments in our lives are really the fruit that emanate from a root. And I, I think that a lot of times we live on the surface and, and we only deal with what we see versus what we don't see. Uh, when we look at the conversation that took place between Jesus and the woman at the well, we find out that the issue was deeper than her desire to be loved by these men. It really was a great need for God.
1: Almost uh, a crying out in a sense.
4: Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you know, she was trying to fill a void uh, <clears throat> with the, to the best of her ability with something that was natural not knowing that what she needed was supernatural. Um, and and it's very interesting because there's a very subtle uh, conversation that happens uh, when she tells Jesus, you know, this water that you're talking about, I want it because I'm tired of being thirsty and I don't want to have to come back here again. And I think that a lot of us are that way. We're tired of longing and we don't want to keep revisiting the same issue over and over again in our lives. And he says, I'll give it to you, um, you know, go and get your husband and Now we get down to to the nitty-gritty of confessing where we really are. She says, I don't have a husband. Well, I mean, she probably had been saying she had a husband. She was living with a man, according to the Scripture. And he says, you've told the truth. And he congratulates her on it. He says, you've done well to tell the truth. So um, we know that the Word says that the truth is what makes us free. It gives us the tools we need to, to get beyond where we are. And uh, so he congratulates her, he's very gracious with her, and says it's true that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not yours. So what he was bringing up was, here's this cycle that you've had in your life, and, and you, you've had five, five, six men, and you're still thirsty. You know, what have we continued to do and still felt the same longing, the same disappointment, even though we thought we were applying solutions to our to our longings and desires. And I think that the light went on in her head because even though she perceived him to be a prophet, the question that she asked him was not about the men. It wasn't about will those relationships work out. It was how could she get to God? Because obviously the men had never been enough. And I say that what God is saying to all of us in the middle of our disappointments is, look to me so that I can show you the source of fulfillment. Look to me So I can give you the wisdom to find a better way to exercise different options in your life that bring about the victory that you desire.
1: And, you know, you put it so well, because so often this ends ends up being a product of having put our trust, our faith our hope and desire on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ.
4: Yeah, most definitely. And and he must be. You know, he says, I am the rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And then he says something even more spectacular. He says, at my right hand are pleasures evermore. I am your exceeding and great reward. And the reward is the pleasure of being in my company, because when I come into your life, I bring everything that you've been looking for. And all of those solutions are found in me. He, he's the one who gives us the wisdom uh, to, to gain the things that he knows we want. He's not opposed to us having what we want, but he wants to add what we need to the ball game too. No. And sometimes we don't recognize that. I don't think that uh, that woman didn't even know why. We don't know, you know, the the inside scoop on all those relationships. It, it, he said she had had five husbands. So if he said five husbands and then differentiated that the one she was with was not hers, then she le- had five legitimate husbands. What happened to them? Did they divorce her? Did they abuse her? Did they leave her? Did they die? We do not know. But out of it, came a vow, obviously, that she was not going to put herself in the position to be disappointed again, and she made a bad choice. She made a choice that she thought would put her in the position of power by simply living with someone so that she could not be abandoned again. And we do that. We we prop ourselves up and we begin to make compromises that we think are guarding our hearts, but it really puts us in the position for greater pain.
1: We appreciate so much, uh, Michelle, the insights. I know a lot of this comes from your own life experience, and, and I'll let readers get a copy of the book to uh, to get more details on that. Meanwhile, again, um, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, published by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com and certainly at uh, Bay Area bookstores. Also information on the web at MichelleHammond.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, MichelleHammond.com. Michelle, thanks again so much for your time.